Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. A big frustration for EIS and private market investors is the inability to sell shares between investment and exit. JP Jenkins has been developing secondary markets for private company shares for as long as anyone. Mason Doink comes on to talk about how they are developing and how things might be changing for the better. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all the podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Mason Doik, who is head of corporate at JP Jenkins. Welcome to the podcast, Mason. Thank you very much, Brian, for having me. Very interested to talk about this subject. Seems that every man and their dog um, is creating some sort of liquidity vehicle um, or exit vehicle for, for invest, and I think it's very vital we can discuss this today. So thank you for having me. No, it's our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became involved in capital markets? Yeah, for sure. So um, it was a, a strange journey, really. I initially was uh, was looking at uh, uh, intelligence and, and cybersecurity and, and financial crime. My studies and education and, and fell into a position where I was actually working as a broker for allocating um, investments into blue chip positions, large funds uh, and bonds. So more inflation hedging investment, which wasn't that exciting um, in the more public capital market side and transitioned actually from that into public uh, private markets. So I started actually raising capital for EIS and SAIS for, for a number of years as well. Typically, sort of the smaller size businesses, growth companies that were looking for that injection of capital for growth before a potential acquisition or, or IPO. And it was a really, really exciting time in my career. But what I found with that position was the fact that, you know, we had so many inroads for investment. And as Justin Dugart Stewart always puts us there, are uh, so many ways to invest like Network Rail. But there's very limited liquidity routes um, and exit for that. And and funnily enough, that you know that actual conversation with both investors, advisors, EIS, SAIS, portfolio managers, led me to to where I am now at JP Jenkins and and providing uh, essentially a very important exit route for for said shareholders. Mm -hmm. So it's probably also worth explaining to people about J.P. Jenkins. A lot of people know the name because it's been a long, around a long time. And I remember it from my days as a fund manager associated with the OFEX market, which is kind of a bit of ancient history now. Tell us a bit about J.P. Jenkins. <laughs> um, so no, J.P. Jenkins, as you mentioned, very well, long established business, great provenance and history. J.P. Jenkins was essentially born out of um, a partnership or collaboration with OFEX in, in the early 90s. The OFEX market was then sourced from the unlisted securities market, and it was really a way in which companies that uh, were unquoted, but a way in which they could access liquidity um, or a trading facility uh, whilst looking through towards that growth, maybe even raising capital. So one of the most interesting and exciting parts, I think, of, of OFEX, when J.P. Jenkins was working alongside them, was the fact that they raised over a billion pounds for UK SMEs in the early 90s. And that was before you had VC houses, PE houses on, on every corner of Barclay Square. And of course, naturally, um, in the later 2000s, you had then EIS, SEIS and VCTs coming through as well. So JP Jenkins was, was born out of, of the OFEX or spin out essentially of, of OFEX, the same founders that were two of the core leading founders of OFEX, which is now the Aquis, went through a number of name changes, one of the junior markets in the UK, but also they were two core leaders in the, the founding and management of AIM initially when that launched as well. So essentially, JP Jenkins and, and OFEX were sort of pioneers of, of the UK junior market, so to speak, and public markets in, in the UK infrastructure. JP Jenkins at his early beginnings was really a facility for a lot of sporting companies. So we had Arsenal, Liverpool, Man City, Pretty much nearly every football club you can think of, bar Tottenham, um, unfortunately, <laughs> which, are, which are with our competitors. But um, and, and it really was in which that a lot of, you know, we found a lot of fans, a lot of uh, shareholdings were spread across a, a very diverse um, number of investors uh, and individuals. And they really wanted a way in which they could access some liquidity, maybe have a token of, of a position in the, uh, the club that they love. Naturally, over the period of the last sort of two decades, we've seen those clubs have been taken private by oligarchs and U.S. family offices and, and that, that sort of transition has changed with football clubs specifically in their shareholding. 
But we then moved on and we had a very um, nice spell of really good, well-known companies with both Offex and JP Jenkins working with the likes of Weetabix, NCP National Car Parks, Adnams Brewery, um, and some very well-known British brands that went on to list onto a public market within the years to, to follow. Where we are now really is that, um, you know, there is a huge need um, for liquidity as always. You've seen huge amounts of capital pumped into EIS, SEIS. Um, I think in EIS alone, there's around 27 billion in about 35,000 companies since 2014. And there's a very small liquidity rate. Naturally, those investors understand that there's a vein, there's a longevity investment sort of proposition here. They know they're getting their tax release, but also we understand that circumstances change. Um, you know, we have lots of investors contacting us saying, you know, I need to access some liquidity for my daughter's um, education. I need to fund maybe a wedding. I need to put down a house deposit. And of course, these circumstances change, the liquidity requirements change and the agendas change or expectations for these companies then to, to address those. So now really we're in a position where we're in quite exciting time for JP Jenkins. Not only are we looking at companies like the old, old traditional, old economy businesses that are looking to IPO and list um, and utilize the platform as a sort of interim marketplace, so to speak, in sort of inverted commas, but also a way in which we can speak to earlier stage businesses, scale-ups, startups that are looking at those exit opportunities, looking at a potential IPO and saying, well, let's actually start to be more proactive than reactive because the issue we find um, naturally is that, you know, these companies only come to us when there is an issue, when there's a shareholder knocking at the door asking for liquidity, when there's a non-exec director saying, you know, well, where, where's the, you know, the, 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 the business going and, and, and are we going to be acquired? Is there going to be an IPO? Is it going to be an MBO? And to manage those expectations, we say to these companies, well, actually be reactive in that approach and, and utilise a platform like us to, to benefit. Okay, so there's a lot in there. We, we, we won't really want to dig into the secondary markets here today because sure. it's an area that, as you say, is increasingly becoming an issue. There's a lot more money in private investments than there probably ever has been, unless you count pre-stock exchange days, I suspect, back in the 17th, 15th, well, 15th century or whatever. So... We're going to talk about secondary transactions. Perhaps just be clear, what do we mean by a secondary transaction? So there's, a, there's always some, sometimes a confusion with secondary transactions because naturally on a public market, if you're doing uh, transactions once they have listed, you know, they can be classified as a secondary transaction, so to speak. But what we're talking about here is really secondary transactions or as classified within JP Jenkins, it's a, a match bargain trade, essentially. Um, and what that means is it's pre-existing shareholders um, that hold shares within a private, unquoted company, trading or placing an order to sell those shares to a new investor. So there, unfortunately, isn't any tax reliefs that come with, with secondary transactions or, or trading. But naturally, with that, those investors are typically buying companies that have a trading history. So there's not the risk that they're a very early stage investment, typically. It's more that they are a long established private trading facility, a private trading company with hopefully a well-known track record and successful sort of revenue generating business that those investors are, are getting involved with. Mm -hmm. And you've kind of indicated the reasons why investors might want sort of secondary transactions and that they've often gone into these investments thinking that they are going to be long-term investments but typically either circumstances change or occasionally their expectations aren't quite being met in terms of they thought they might get out in five years and it's taking longer than they expected or whatever. What is the real challenge here in terms of if an investor wants to exit, why is it hard for him to exit? I think the, 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 the biggest answer, to be completely honest with you, Brian, for that question is naturally always liquidity. So, you know, we have seen a huge development in the junior markets with Aquis, um, you know, being sort of rebranded and, and launched as of the sort of last two years or so, three years. And also, you know, some real developments with from the LSE and the AIM, which we you know, are, are looking to, to work with quite closely moving forward. But there is always naturally that issue with lower market capitalized businesses that haven't got a, a very strong or successful trading history as such. And it just becomes down to the, the issue that on the public markets, at least with the junior markets in the UK, major funds are either reluctant or 
actually can't trade in those positions because naturally the issues that had with the Woodford scandal, you know, you have to be able to have liquidity within a period of a set small amount of time. So that already mitigates the liquidity for those junior markets. Given the fact that we're essentially a private, um, unquoted match bargain trading facility, there is even you know more uh, sort of a limit on, so to speak, on the liquidity. That's not to say that we see um, no liquidity whatsoever. There's you know some very very strong successful companies, to name a few you know, that we've seen that do you know nearly a couple hundred thousand pounds worth every week at least of trading, which is quite significant for for a private company. But I think as you mentioned, you know the the hardest thing for any investor particularly on unquoted private companies, is the access of liquidity. We know that, as you said, lots of investors have the change in circumstances. We also know that if when speaking to angel syndicates predominantly, angel investors say to us all the time, Christ, if we could have a way in which we could manage our portfolio a bit more efficiently, we could potentially take profits, we could attend, you know, potentially in, in the positions that are actually doing incredibly well and they've seen a, a significant growth, they can take their money off the table and can keep the remaining equity within the business, then it's it's essentially a de-risk you know, investment. So in, in those very you know positive and acceptable viewpoints, you know, this can work ex- incredibly well, but it's it's managing that expectation efficiently. And as as I said, liquidity is is the issue and the biggest challenge here, which we're all addressing. And when you do find buyers what sort of people or organisations are typically the buyers of these shares? So our platform or, or, or system has essentially always been set up to be broker to broker. Um, so for the last 32, 33 years, we have been a broker to broker match trading facility where it settles through Crest. And that's very much following suit with the London Stock Exchange with you know, T plus two settlement um, broker to broker and uh, all going through the electronic settlement system. So it usually is that we don't know the underlying buyers. Within the secondary market, typically within our you know, other um, providers of the same sort of service, there is typically uh, not a very clear understanding of the underlying buyers, naturally just because they've come through the brokers. But also we do know a lot of the investors that are coming through um, our, our beta system of our new platform that we're hoping to launch as well. So typically all of these investors or they all have to be actually, not typically, um, they all have to be sophisticated investors, professional investors or high net worth. When they're investing through their broker, they will always complete their KYC ML to that broker's requirements and then obviously trade. We do actually also have a growing proportion of family offices and corporate investors that are very interested in the secondary market as well. When you look at, in contrast to the US, the UK seems to be sort of 10, 15 years behind. The US secondary market over there is a multi-billion dollar market we work quite closely with, and we've spoken to, you know, the likes of Forge, Equity Zen, and Hat Investment Partners that we've got a, a collaboration with as well. And they're really looking at the high-end, exciting, pre-IPO, big secondary transactions, likes of, you know, the Airbnb, Spotify, Klarna. And is that simply a function of they have, you know, so many more unicorns or decacorns or whatever out there, so they do have a huge number of companies which have very large shareholder bases. I don't know what the shareholder base in Airbnb was pre-IPO, but I can imagine it was probably pretty big. Yeah, very, very large. I mean, it, that's that's definitely one part to play. Um, also, I think there is this sort of stigma, um, to be completely honest with you, Brian, and it really is an old adage culture sort of thing, I think, with secondary markets. You know, naturally, people used to think that if your company was on the secondary market, traditionally, they used to drop off from a public exchange. So the old school sort of definition of secondary markets and facilities was in fact that companies that were listed on AIM, Aquis or LSE delisted, but still needed or required an afterlife for their shareholders to trade. Um, That's when they would come to a a match bargain trading facility. So it was a less sexy story. Investors weren't looking at it as a sort of growth perspective, but looking at it as a way in which it may be able to restructure and and bounce back from, from the ashes. So I think that stigma has obviously had, a, had a, an effect on, on the growth in, in the UK of secondary markets. Also, as you said, yeah, the, the, essentially the, the growth of those businesses and the, the, you know, the involvement as well. But I think realistically, when you look at secondary markets now in the UK, there is a huge drive towards this. And I think we've started to realise that, especially with the LSC launching Flow and their initiation or programme with them. Also, the, So what's you know, Flow? I don't know what that is. 
so I, I'll be completely honest with you, Brian. I don't know a huge amount about Flow. It's especially a, a SaaS product, or a service, a software service that the LSC are looking um, at working with to provide um, access to to private markets, private capital, and potentially some fundraising activity. I believe, um, but forgive me if I'm wrong. And they launched or made an announcement recently in a press release that they were looking at, you know, LSE was looking at private markets more um, uh, closely, looking at a way in which they can assist these companies prior to a potential IPO. And, and essentially, I think realistically, it's building that sort of feed the ground for them to be able to have those companies that are seamlessly transitioned onto a public market, sort of where we see ourselves fitting. And also, you know, I think you look at angel syndicates, you look at EIS, SEIS funds, you look at big major fund players in the UK that have private portfolios, even uh, the brokers that typically were always public market focused, capital markets focused, are now creating unquoted divisions. Uh, and that is exactly what you said at the start of the call, because there's so much money now in private markets, the return on private investment is actually higher and outpacing public market capital as well. And I think that, you know, moving forward, there is going to be an increased demand and focus on liquidity following those investments into private capital. Um, so I think that that's, you know, where, where we're going to see the movement and, and hopefully, you know, we'll be a big part to play in that as pioneers and then moving on to, to the, the end store as well. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to America, what else are they doing in America that's kind of different from here? Um, I mean, is it is it there must be more than just simply a cultural difference. What are they doing to make these things work? I think the real focus is in the US at least. They are very much heavily focused on big pre-IPO positions, companies. You know, so it's the really exciting, glamorous storyline that is driving their investments in secondary markets. Investors are seeing a way in which they can access a company where they couldn't before a maybe more suitable valuation. So potentially secondaries may be at a discount. So if someone says to you, well, we've got some position in uh, you know, SpaceX or Revolut, it's a, maybe at a slight discount, it may be at a slight premium. But a lot of investors are really struggling at accessing those, those types of companies. Unless you are a very big VC or a big fund manager that can access that with a very big ticket size. And it really is that in the US, they see these opportunities as a way in which they can actually provide these opportunities to these smaller ticket investors. I think naturally over in, in the UK, what we're looking at here is we've got, as you said, a lot, a lot of, I mean, I guess the companies over here are focused more on micro level in comparison to the US. I wouldn't say there's that as, as a, a big of a push in secondary markets for big pre-IPO tickets. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're not seeing the likes of, I don't know, Revolut or whatever. Th these guys are not pushing for liquidity. I guess, I guess they, they are, they are, they are in, in one sense. I think Revolut's got a position on a crowdfunding secondary market, um, which probably has a significant amount of trading. There are some other companies looking at that. I think realistically, it's when those companies get to a certain size, a specific, you know, in Revolut's case specifically, um, as you said, they've got a lot of funding. They're continuously raising capital. Their cap table is always growing. The shareholder base is always growing. Um, and naturally, with that, there is a need for liquidity. So those sort of companies we will see you know, accessing a secondary market. The only thing I think that's difficult with that, taking into that in mind, is when raising through crowdfunding, we then naturally find that on the secondary market side, there is lots of smaller transactions. So you're finding that you have one share trading between one share, you know, a couple of shares trading between another share, which becomes a bit of a logistical nightmare um, in some, some circumstances. So what, what we're really looking at trying to build with a secondary market in, in, in general is a more sophisticated investment platform, so to speak, or um, trading platform where investors understand the, the benefits of trading bigger ticket size and bigger volumes then because naturally you 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 lose out i guess on the commissions or the trading costs the, if you had one share it probably mitigates you selling it uh, if uh, you wanted to do that through a second well so some of these one shares can be priced at very high values on the private markets they don't do share splits often the same way that they do in in the quoted markets but exactly. your point is what is taken to what extent is the rise of secondaries within fundraisings sort of kind of competition or undermining this? Because increasingly I'm speaking to investors and fund managers who 
when a company raises a Series A or B or C, there's so much capital out there that they want more they can get in the fundraising, and they go to early invest and say, right, okay, we'll offer you some secondary liquidity. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's what we've been seeing actually. Like you said, very recently, there's been quite a lot of deals where they're doing hybrid sort of propositions. So companies, as you mentioned, are maybe doing a one, two, five, ten million raise, and out of that, they're providing maybe a two million secondary position or three million four million position, and really that is a, a very efficient way of managing those expectations of those shareholders, providing liquidity to those early investors that need some money off the table, but also putting in you know the capital required for the business for a primary side as well. So you know that's something that we we've seen quite often last year especially with bigger ticket size investors, family offices, corporate investors saying, well, we're happy to put in um, you know, a portion of primary and secondary. The company benefits from the liquidity and the capital raise, and they also manage the expectations of the shareholders at the same time. So putting a proposition in place like that is, is actually quite beneficial for the company moving forward. And I think you know, I completely agree with you that those sort of things, I think, are going to be happening more often uh, as we see liquidity increase within the secondary mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think it's an issue. So, so you spoke a lot about well, about the market be secondary market be being a whole. The, the problem is finding liquidity. To what extent it, or to what extent, is an information asymmetry a problem here? Because if you're invested in a company, you know about the private company. If you're not invested, getting information isn't always that easy. No, it's a, a very, very good point, Ryan, actually. I, you know, I, I, we get asked this quite a lot by both the companies, the investors and the shareholders. Naturally, investors want to know as much information as possible. Shareholders want to know where the information is on the particular company they've invested in. Um, and the company, you know, decides when and which they provide the information. Naturally, on a private market or an unquoted company, they don't have any fixed hard requirements to put in good governance and essentially provide regular updates to those, those particular parties. Um, I always found it in my experience, raising capital for these businesses, there was always the pain points of trying to get these companies to put out as much information as possible to keep the shareholders engaged with what was happening month to month, quarter to quarter or or year to year. And that's exactly it. It comes down to uh, good corporate governance, regular reporting, and that equals liquidity. You know, we have companies um, that we work with regularly that are incredible at putting out monthly reports, regular press releases updates on the platform and they benefit greatly from an increase in demand of the share price or naturally if their shares available in the secondary then they will be swept up on the other side there are companies that we do need to sort of push a bit more and handhold through the the process of of providing a bit more uh, of a uh, sort of an update but really it is down to to that information as you said the investors want to know as much information as possible with the primary raising capital side, which obviously we don't get involved with and, and isn't sort of the focus of, of the talk today, but you always have an investment memorandum or a pitch deck or a presentation in which you can see all of the information in place. And with a secondary market, it's difficult because it's not the same proposition. Um, you know, the company's not raising any new money, it's not issuing any new shares. So it's really about saying to that business or that particular company, well, it's in your best interest to provide us with as much information as possible. And what we try and do is to mitigate that sort of issue or risk is we make sure that every company we work with has at least you know, all of their latest annual accounts and reports on the platform, any sort of quarterly updates, press releases, announcements. And really, if there is um, a, an opportunity there for even bigger investment sizes for a secondary market proposition, then we can even get the um, senior management to speak to those investors as well to, to sort of answer any queries or questions they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's always going to be a challenge because you're never going to get the same information that you do for quoted companies. Of I, I think the burden of that is probably too great for the sorts of companies you're looking at. So you wouldn't want to put that administrative burden on them. But finding that middle ground, I think my memory of Offix was they, they did have some requirement for disclosure, but I can't remember exactly what that was. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's like at least a semi-annual report. A quarterly is preferable. But it's one of those things where you find with, with public markets in the UK, you know, they're, they're, there's always been that sort of classic article you'll read in the paper week to week or month to month about onerous reporting standards or disclosures or regulations and rules in place that, as you said, sometimes can cause administrational burden for the company. Naturally, it's incredibly strong and good for the investor because they want to see as much 
as possible. So it's finding a middle ground between the two where everyone is happy. But I think you know where we're where we're going with with secondary markets and, and the position of the UK at the moment is if we can start to work with pre-IPO companies and start to actually put good governance in place and utilise these match bargain trading facilities or secondary markets or however you you wish to describe it um, as a way in which that we can sort of put in place good governance for these companies, put in place a minimal requirement for the businesses, put in place for both the shareholders and investors. I think it's going to be a, a sort of general win-win for for all involved. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other thing that occurred to me was thinking about companies, and if, if you know, if, if I was a manager running a company or whatever, and I was thinking about getting a secondary market listing, what would be a good sort of company who should be thinking about this? Because presumably, if I'm struggling, that's going to be hard. If I don't have good auditor accounts or whatever, that's going to make it hard. But there's a flip side. What what sort of companies? You know, we spoke about pre-IPO. Presumably, it's not just pre-IPO companies who go look at this. It's it's one. Of those, I always mention pre-IPO naturally just because it's the follow-on from sort of the US secondary markets. But as you mentioned, we're talking about every company in all their guises. So it could be you know early-stage startup scale-ups that never wish to list you know indefinitely, and it could be all the way through to established private businesses that are 30 years old and they have lots of family and friends and, and shareholders and stakeholders that are all involved in the business, even employees. It really is a, a, a significant question that we always get asked, and I always hate this because I don't want to sort of tippy-toe around the answer, but with the market as, as such or a secondary you know, platform as such, um, you want to be as broad as possible. You don't want to silo into a specific sector. So naturally, any secondary market or match bargain trading facility is by essence, a, um, a very broad spectrum, a sector agnostic platform. Typically, the companies that we have or see are post-Series A. Uh, they've gone through a number of rounds of funding. That's not the companies that haven't done you know, a number of rounds of funding or pre-seed. So you, um, you know, can't look at this as an option you know, further down the line or start pre- preparation is key, as course, you know, of course. You know, it's always worth having this in, in the, the back pocket, even when you're going for your initial sort of cut first couple of raises. But typically it's companies that have gone through a number of funding rounds. They potentially may be coming to their, their end or their, their latter part of their EIS, SEIS, three to five years of those tax reliefs for those investors. And they're really looking at building out a corporate profile, putting in, as I mentioned, that good corporate governance, potentially even utilizing um, it as a investor relations tool um, for the shareholders. And, you know, some companies even look at it as a way of actually accessing a valuation, a price, and using that to leverage merge and acquisition activity as well as they grow. So, you know, companies can look at the platform in a very multifaceted approach. Secondary markets as a whole are not only for existing shareholders to exit. It's one of those things where secondary markets can be many things, and it really is how that company wants to utilise that mm-hmm. to the best out of it. And is there any bias in sort of the types of companies? Because instinctively, I always think if you've got more, I mean, I know you said people have to be sophisticated, but at the end of the day, it's the more retail end than the professional end. And and sometimes consumer, so what we've seen in, in crowdfunding is that consumer companies get a better reception than sort of B2B because generally people can understand them easier if they're not experts. Are you yeah. seeing any sort of these sort of, biases in the sort of companies that you see it's it's one of those things where we are going through a transition currently and i think you know old economy businesses are slowly getting less exciting i mean not to say that, you know not to say that that's um that's my opinion as such but you know within within the world where we're looking at renewable energy we're looking at esg we're looking at sustainability it is a less sexy proposition when you've got an old economy business or a mining business or an oil and gas business on on a secondary market. I think presumably well, these these are the sort of businesses that are probably getting less funding as well. Now, well, I, you'd, you'd imagine so. But then, funnily enough, the, one of the best traded companies on our platform is a mining company, which is incredibly interesting. And 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 to be honest, we're not sure exactly you know, why that is in comparison to maybe some other sort of earlier stage businesses that are, you know, in the ESG space or food alternative space. But it really is just dependent on, you know, the, the product, the company, the management, and of course, their their track record and, and what they provide. I think with that company in particular, it is all down to corporate, gov- uh, corporate governance. You know, they are putting out lots of very good 
press releases and news, keeping the shareholders up to date and naturally people buying in more um, as that company grows. Um, in terms of the biases themselves, I mean, or, or you know, the way in which the market's transitioning, we're seeing a lot more in food alternatives, which is quite interesting. So we've got, you know, likes of sort of agronomics warrants that are, are, are looking at trading on a secondary market. There's different um, companies that are listed on the LSE, but they've got alternative asset classes, they've got, you know, convertible loan notes or bonds. They potentially want to trade on a secondary market or a match bargain facility as well. And naturally, I know I know it's sort of a, a pain point because everyone sort of classifies anything and everything as ESG at the moment. But we do have a lot of ESG um, focused businesses on the company on the on on the sort of secondary market as well. So I think that's just the way it's it's going to go moving forward. But we want to keep a you know broad spectrum as as much as possible. Interestingly enough, we're seeing. I guess it's sort of a natural reaction given COVID. We've got a lot of med tech, a lot of pharma businesses and lots of companies in that space. Health tech is looking at a secondary market as well. They've got higher cash burn, but they also have a significant amount of capital that they raise over those periods of time. And that's obviously when they can actually say, well, we're looking for And presumably a lot of those will have one eye on fundraising because, you know, I, 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 I've written before about in EIS, you know, you fund something in EIS and there's a path to aim and that could go through some sort of secondary market while you're still yeah. private. Yeah, no, no, exactly that. It's one of those things where those particular companies, yeah, but well, the saying used to be is that a startup's only 12 months away from another funding round. <laughs> uh, so typically you'd always find that, you know, a company is going for another fundraise once they've finished their last fundraise. But having that secondary market in place is quite interesting because we've actually seen from, you know, studies that they actually leverage a higher capital raise on the primary round when they have a secondary market in place. Because there's that um, mentality from investors that they have peace of mind that there is liquidity if needs be. As you mentioned, circumstances change, they've got access to that. And then in turn, they write off bigger ticket sizes because they understand that there's a, a, a trading facility in place. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder how real that is because you can imagine in the circumstances where investors feel they need it, probably a lot of investors feel will feel that need. They'll be rushing for the exit when the company's struggling. So it, exactly. I'm not sure how strong protection that will feel well it's one of those things where the company themselves you know can manage it quite effectively there's there's periods in which that they are are, i mean we've had companies that you know as you mentioned are going through tougher times but if there's a you know i mean inflation obviously is rising at the moment but if there's low inflation rate it's cheap to borrow money they can always you know process buybacks they can restructure so we see companies utilize the secondary market to really make make most of that in the last number of years that we've seen where inflation is low naturally obviously as that is increasing then obviously there may not be you know fresh available money out there but on the flip side there is a way in which obviously companies can mitigate those concerns as, as i said you know we do have companies where they have had um some tumultuous times with uncertainty in the markets specifically the mining company i mentioned that actually delisted aim and and came to us restructured and doubled their market cap and share price through a secondary market or our secondary market in the last 18 months or so. So, you know, those, those typically companies can utilize the platform very well. It's just timing is, is perfect in these sort of situations. And as I said at the start, I think, as you mentioned, with these types of companies, it really is about thinking about these opportunities before they become an issue. So as you said, when, when, when it becomes an issue and all the shareholders are saying, well, actually, you know, we're not sure where the business is going. We don't know if we believe in the future of this business. We might need some liquidity for our own personal reasons. That's when you find that the, the sellers are running to the door. But if you have a company that's on a, you know, a, a nice growth trajectory, that's looking at putting in a secondary market in place or a match bargain facility in place prior to any sort of major concerns, then these issues can be mitigated along the way and managed mm-hmm. more effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that all makes sense. So the the other another thing that occurs to me is we, we talk about if things go wrong, investor protection presumably in this market is kind of limited. Is is it is it just entirely caveat emptor, or is is there anything investors can sort of look to to for reassurance? That is that is the biggest pain point I think for investors buying in secondary markets. There's not the added incentive of, of tax release, um, which is obviously a, a bit of a concern. And, you know, you don't have the option of loss relief on, on that on the other side as well. I think for the investors themselves, 
the the main the main thing I feel I've taken away from speaking to investors in in the secondary market is the fact that most of these individuals or, or investors understand that um, typically these secondary market businesses have had a number of years to run and create revenue and uh, be EBITDA positive maybe uh, and be on the the right trajectory. You find that when you're investing in SEIS or EIS or early stage venture back businesses, they are at the very sort of early beginnings of of their 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 growth. I think with the secondary market as a whole, you can even actually, the one way I would mention, Brian, that we can mitigate the risk as such is that we've even had companies trade at a small discount. So we've particularly had some really nice case studies where particular companies are doing maybe a series A, series B. They've done a primary round. They've raised that that money from maybe a VC or, or a particular um, syndicate. And on the back of that, they've actually had a secondary market you know, facility in place where shareholders that are looking to take some liquidity can sell at maybe a 5, 10, 15% discount. They can sell um, at the same price in which the VC or the investor bought in the Series A. The VC wants a better deal, so they're coming in at a discount. And the investor then is happy because they're buying in at a discount to the actual market cap or true valuation of the business. So it's win-win for everyone. In those sort of particular cases, that's the ideal scenario. You get investors that have got a three, four, five times multiple on their investment and their tax release. They're very happy with their, their return. You've then got the investors coming in, buying the secondary shares off those pre-existing shareholders at a slight discount. So they're a slightly de-risk proposition. And then, of course, the company's also gone through maybe a, a primary round as well. So it, it works very well for the business and both the shareholders and investors. Excellent. So... With one eye on the future, I'm going to start by framing it in the past, and that we've seen a lot of attempts to make secondary markets really work with, I think, charitably mixed success. You know, I, I, I know you've got a couple of competitors out there who are doing stuff, and they're, they're in business. I don't think we would call them successes. How do you see things evolving over the next few years? I mean, I know how you'd like them to evolve, but how do you think they actually will evolve? Yeah, no, of course. Being completely honest with you, so yeah, we we have um, a number of sort of, I wouldn't say direct competitors because every single business or investment platform or secondary market or however they sort of position themselves in in the ecosystem um, are offering a different service. So you have companies out there that are providing an auction model for the secondary market, match bargain trading facility. You then have um, companies out there that, you know, as you said, coming off the back of crowdfunding and providing secondary markets for retail investors and shareholders. And there's a different demographic or um, investor type there as well. I think moving forward, there is going to be a very, well, there is, um, as of starting sort of last year, uh, you know, it was called the zeitgeist of last year, the secondary markets in the UK. And really, there is a very strong attention and push towards private markets and what we can do with liquidity. You know, as you mentioned, I'd love to say that, you know, we'll have some very successful booming secondary markets with some significant you know numbers of companies on there but i think the 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 process will be a sort of long-winded process it will be you know a, a slower process in in the sense that we need to get all parties involved investors companies and even brokers and fund managers understanding of um you know how the mechanisms work so to speak but i think utilizing technology that we've got nowadays you know going past the pain points of old-fashioned outdated secondary markets or transition processes before, I think will make sure that we can really bolster and add on to, to the products and services secondary market offerings or companies offer. I think also the likes of, as I mentioned, with the likes of public markets and main markets, where secondary markets in place are heavily um, in discussion with those, those actual entities. So I think if there is you know a breakthrough there i think that's going to be very very important for secondary markets so the breakthrough is that kind of a streamlined path from a secondary market to a full listing that sort of thing exactly that yeah exactly so you know we're we're seeing a very increased focus from the lsc on private markets even um you know you're looking at the u.s markets as well and in contrast um are very much heavily focused on the secondary markets what they're bringing through on these pre-ipo deals and how they can essentially tailor those companies or, or, or sort of, um, you know, put them in this nursery, so to speak, and provide them with a, a, a nice company to come through onto the, the public market. And I think if those partnerships get put in place, 
which I, I don't think, no doubt, there will be over time. That's when we'll see the secondary markets really flourish because there'll be a natural progression, there'll be a natural pipeline, there'll be a natural, you know, trajectory for these companies to say, well, we utilise uh, a match bargain trading facility. We'll get everything in place. We'll start acting like a public company, and you tick all the boxes that that a public recognised exchange would be looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that all sounds very promising. Let's hope we actually get some success in that. What I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So because you're not a fund manager, we've, we've abbreviated these a little bit. We're not asking, going to ask you what your last investment was. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. There's been a number of personal um, times I've, I've uh, maybe failed as such or maybe turned, turned um, slightly differently. But I, uh, I was actually heavily investing in tech positions across the UK and US over the last sort of year or two. And there was a natural sell-off, uh, as you probably may be aware, in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. I think that's one I of I think since things. November, people seem to be calling November as the peak. It is, it is. And it, what the, the issue was is that, you know, there was very, very high valuations in the US and, and UK. Things were seeming more expensive. But you know, these companies were pushing out more and more products, more and more services. Nobody thought there was going to be a break on, on these major sort of blue chip players. And I think that's been my downfall. I think much like our conversation before before the podcast, talking about emotional attachment to investments, talking about cutting your losses. Um, I think when you're 77% up in a position or a fund, um, which is heavily focused on tech, you should probably try and take <laughs> take the wins when they're there instead of riding it out as a long-term investment. And I think that's my mindset is that I'm so focused on private equity, I'm so focused on long-term investments that sometimes when I'm involved in public markets, I naturally hold on to those positions maybe longer than, than necessary. Um, but that's probably one of the, the, the biggest failures in the last 12 months, at least. Mm-hmm. I can sympathise a little bit with that. At least you haven't indulged in so, so, so the, the, the classic fallacy, supposedly, is that people take profits too soon and they let the winners run it off. Yeah. So... I'm the, the complete opposite. My other half would tell me that I've got a problem with not selling out at the right time. <laughs> 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 I, 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 I could toss in another story about that, but it's about a previous employer, so I probably shouldn't. So we've spoken a lot about sort of private markets and what's, you know, what's great. If there's one thing you could change about private markets, what would you change? Um, I think really it's that, I think the main thing is, I know we've, we've talked about it quite a lot, but it is that, that corporate governance that reporting, it's the information flows between the company and the investors or the shareholders. Um, I know it's getting a lot of noise at the moment, a lot of improvement, especially through companies that are providing P portfolios, VC portfolios, um, where they're making sure that their portfolio companies are providing regular information. But there is still a huge divide. um, And we speak to a lot of angel groups say, you know, well, actually, we're not going to follow on with that particular company. We're not going to put into the next Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D. You know, we've been kept in the dark. And that is a, a huge concern for both primary rounds and those shareholders, but also secondary markets. But naturally, as you said, you know, without the information flows, without the, um, the updates to both the shareholders and new investors, then the liquidity is stifled. And, and I think as we, as we go through a more uh, well, I mean, as we sort of progress through everything that we've done, we've discussed with um, partnerships in place with public markets, as we bolster secondary markets and we view the US and the UK follows suit, I think all of those will play into the part in which the private markets and private companies will then start to realise that this is a huge requirement um, moving forward. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I do wonder to what extent private company managers realise they're doing themselves a disservice by not sending out updates you know, clearly somewhere it's not being communicated to them. This is not a good idea to just, you know, take the money and keep quiet. I don't know what's going on. And that, and it's quite interesting. You look at the, the primary side and naturally from successful companies, um, follow-on funding is uh, a large proportion is made up of their pre-existing captive holders. And, you know, you can really see, you can identify these successful companies that do corporate governance in a very well suited and professional manner because, those those rounds typically you see I saw one the other day and you know there's 50 60 70 percent of their raise has already been allocated to you know the 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 shareholders um, that previously bought in from from the very beginnings and it's only those other companies you said that go on and raise and raise and raise and raise from different investors and different groups and they go back to different you know parties because there's naturally not that information flow 
which is something that's so key moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully someone's listening and we'll take that on board. So as listeners to podcast know, I'm an avid reader and always up for new ideas. Are there any books out there that you like and would really recommend to people? Yeah, I was thinking about this actually recently because I was be, I was reading um, a couple of sort of racy books in derivatives, which probably aren't <laughs> as exciting as, as some books you maybe read. But one I'd say is actually a good read that um, uh, uh, a good contact of mine is David Horn, and I'm sure you may have heard of him. Um, he has written a book called uh, Add the Multiply, which talks about the challenges of of growing a business. And I think from that book itself, if you're in, if there's any entrepreneurs out there that are looking at starting businesses, if there's any SMEs that are looking at raising capital um, for founders and, and managers and advisors, it gives a really simple explanation um, for the typical types of investors that you can go to speak to, the ways in which you can actually um, integrate and work with um, VCs and term sheets, which are very important because they've become quite complicated at times. And also, I think he talks quite well about the, as you, as you quite like, Brian, the battle scars and the stories of, of, of what he did wrong um, in his experience of 30 years of, of managing and running and selling businesses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's always good to get that candid sort of approach because I, I think it's very easy to write stories about how, oh, yes, if, if particularly you've been successful, you get this glorious story of success and there's, there's things that are little stumbles along the way, but I think, getting I think someone who's really honest is, is, is quite rare. Well, that's it. I think completely, completely that point with private markets as a whole, it's when those companies talk about their, their mistakes and what they've learned from is actually quite telling in comparison to companies that put out all positives, nothing's been negative, um, you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's a jolly fairy tale. Which sometimes is, is is also you know in 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 devil's advocate or two sides of the story you know there there's maybe a, a concern there that they're not being fully transparent, which is also quite a, an interesting uh, context and topic to study. Yes, well. I, I think there's one of my apps who did a quote of the day, and I think yesterday or the day before is something about we only grow and when in the face of adversity. If, yeah. if all you have is a smooth journey, then actually a company that only, and, and probably almost no company has a smooth journey, if we're being honest, if you only have a smooth journey, then when the adversity comes along, you're not prepared for coping yeah. with it. Yeah. So what do you wish you knew when you started looking at private markets that you know now? Christ, there's probably so many things. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing is studying the sort of financial forecasts of businesses and valuations, because you know, valuations themselves at this, this current stage are, are quite wild. And I think, you know, realistically... Wild as in excessive or wild as in all over the place? It's, um, I mean, it's a bit of both, really. <laughs> it depends on where you're looking. You know, US valuations, and it goes back to the, the, the failure I mentioned about sort of US companies as well. But, you know, the, the valuations have been riding quite a strong wave. And we've seen in the last number of sort of small, about six to eight months or so, valuations come drastically down with macroeconomic effects as well. Um, and I think they're being priced more um, conservatively, I'd say in, in the last matter of, sort of months or weeks. But I think, you know, going from, from that point of view, when I came into to private markets, is really understanding, valuing those businesses at a very, you know, suitable level. Um, not that it's so conservative that, you know, it downplays the business, raising money at, you know, a, a lower valuation. As you mentioned, secondary markets as a whole, liquidity is a struggle. Looking at junior markets and the bottom quartile of those markets, liquidity is a struggle. And having business- I don't think even the bottom quarter, if you look at AIM. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think when you take into account all of these, these factors that are sort of against you, in a way, you really want to be looking at the valuations of business providing an acceptable entrance point for new investors to, to increase the liquidity that's available. Um, you know, I think the issue that we see now is, is that companies are raising capital and then they're going back to you know, crowdfunding or EIS, SEIS or whatever it may be, and they're actually doing down rounds, which is you know, then another concern for the business. So I think that that's one thing. Definitely the, the first thing you'd look at is, is one of the first things you'd look at is that. But yeah, no, there, there's, there's plenty of things that I, you know, I've, I've taken and learned from in terms of my mistakes over the years and, and working in private and public markets. I think one thing that you know, I wish I knew uh, as well as the fact that there is access to a secondary market, because when you know when working in in private markets and, and working within raising for EIS and SEIS, 
I mean, at least 90% of the companies we spoke to didn't even realise there was a facility in place for this. And it's not until they actually get on an AIM or an Aquis and they're paying 200 to 500,000 pounds in professional advisory fees that they think, Christ, if we only knew there was a facility in place prior to this, then we may have, you know, been able to utilise that prior to a sort of early listing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, these these things are. I, I think it's that success breeds success as well. In terms of, as I say. Liquidity has always been a challenge, so that gives people very mixed impressions about the what the value of doing this. You know, if there was more liquidity, it might become more widely accepted, etc. Virtuous circle. So we'd have to hope. So, if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at JP Jenkins, where should they go? So the the best way to find out information about us, of course, is on the website. So it's uh, www.jpjenkins.com. Um, but if you're you know very interested in the subjects. Uh, maybe a particular company that you're 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 in talks with, or would like to sort of find out a bit more, then then definitely get in contact with myself. Um, my best email address is is md at jpjenkins.com. Well, we shall put those in the show notes. So thank you very much for coming today, Mason. I wish you every success in terms of improving secondary market liquidity, and I really mean that because I I think it's something that. The market as a whole needs so. Um, wishing you all the best in terms of developing things for the future. You've, you've you've known us from the very early beginnings, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll we'll follow on suit. But uh, but no, it's looking very promising. We're very excited about the future, and I think it's only now in the last year or two that that you know there's been a real spotlight on secondary markets. So as you said, there's been a tumultuous ride or journey for, for secondary markets in the UK, but I think now is 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 where we, we will, will flourish. I hope you're right. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.